This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad No, not yet, my dear Well, the term banana republic uh, stems from the kind of people that went down to Central America Set up various banana-growing enterprises I hope those of you of a certain age will get a chuckle out of a, a recall of that Chiquita banana commercial from, I guess, the 60s. Less amusing is the notion of the Banana Republic, which refers to certain nations, generally Central America, maybe maybe some in South America, that, well, let's just say didn't have the most stable forms of government. Some years back, we were in correspondence with author Rich Cohen to talk about his book, the Fish That Ate the Whale, The Life and Times of America's Banana King. Because believe you me, the story of bananas is an interesting one. Not just about the fruit, which is a wonderful fruit, but about the politics that resulted from having an enterprise that made a lot of money with fruit. Some of you may be familiar, and we hope you are, with what happened down in Guatemala in 1954, when the Guatemalan government decided that the tiny taxes that were being paid by United Fruit and others needed to get boosted a little bit. If you look back at what numbers we have, this certainly seems reasonable. But United Fruit didn't like that idea. They thought that was communism. And wouldn't you know it, they'd been represented on Wall Street by certain prestigious law firms. And so it was one of the lawyers from that law firm, John Foster Dulles, became Secretary of State and his brother Alan became head of the CIA, the idea of going down to a banana republic and changing the government had a lot of appeal to President Eisenhower, who, after all, organized the D-Day invasion and thought, you know, there must be an easier way to do this sort of thing. So it was that the then new, relatively new organization known as the Central Intelligence Agency was tasked with going in and changing the government of that banana republic. The whole operation is something we could easily devote an entire show to. But the point is that a covert operation employing a lot of propaganda techniques was able, without spending a great deal of money, to overthrow a government and install a new one. The government that we put in place to serve the interests of United Fruit and other growers was not necessarily a good government to serve the interests of the Guatemalan people. And if you take the time to research this sort of thing, and, and we hope that you do at some point, Dear listener, you'll find a rather depressing read of, of bad people that shouldn't be in charge of things messing the whole thing up. And sadly, when you look at the governance of the United States of America at the present time, I think one is hard-pressed not to think of us as a giant banana republic. We live in a modern age filled with wonders. We're in the atomic age. We're in the space age. We're in the information age. We're in all kinds of whiz-bang, cool future ages. 
But one thing we are not living in is the age of really cool politics. Oh, there still are some people out there trying to do right, and we want to do everything we can to encourage that. When American Wheeler Dealer Bill Browder ran afoul of the authorities over in Russia by getting on the wrong side of Vladimir Putin, his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, paid a heavy price. Notes the Economist, in life, Sergei Magnitsky was a thorn in the side of Russia's kleptocrats. The Russian lawyer paid the heaviest price for uncovering the institutionalized tax fraud. He was tortured and died in prison. In death, he haunts them still. America already has a Magnitsky Act, aimed at people responsible for gross human rights violations. On July 6th, the British Foreign Office announced its own Magnitsky sanctions against 47 individuals and two entities. Among these, 25 Russians whom the government identifies as having contributed to Magnitsky's mistreatment, including Alexander Bastrykin, head of Russia's domestic investigative agency and an ally of Vladimir Putin. Another 20 are Saudi officials involved in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. This is encouraging. Less encouraging is the book review I stumbled on in The Economist about the book Twilight of Democracy by Anne Applebaum. To quote from their review, As an American-born chronicler of communism, Anne Applebaum surfed the wave with aplomb. She wrote incisive books about the Soviet penal system and the Western fools who failed to see its horrors, about Stalin's campaign after 1945 to crush democracy in half of Europe, and about the appalling famine he inflicted on Ukraine in the 1930s. In Twilight of Democracy, her tone is more personal and vulnerable. The informal transatlantic coalition of politicians, scholars, and writers to which she belonged has broken up, and the worst parts have for now come out on top. From Brexit Britain and Donald Trump's America to the cynical politics of Poland and Hungary, she feels beset by a new chauvinistic right that has no regard for rules, truth, or institutions. Ms. Applebaum evokes an acute sense of betrayal as people she trusted turn against her quicker than she thought possible. Writing sadly about the people who applauded the breakup of the Soviet bloc in the early 90s, Applebaum said, Applebaum sees that such folks have adopted an outlook that sees imaginary enemies everywhere, plays on anti-immigrant and anti-gay sentiments, and has no respect for independent judges or media. She mourns the breakup of America's anti-communist coalition. She thought she was part of a moral crusade to spread constitutional principles and the rule of law. Now, she realizes that there were other agendas at work. Some conservative Christians were more concerned with spreading Christianity. Many never had that much interest in advancing democracy. And what can you say about what's going on in America when you see a headline that says, White House takes aim at Fauci as he disagrees with Trump on virus. Notes CNN, in a statement last Saturday, a White House official told the agency that, quote, several White House officials are concerned about the number of times Fauci has been wrong on things, unquote. The official went on to provide a lengthy list of examples citing Fauci's comments early in the pandemic and linking to past interviews. These bullet points, which resemble opposition research on a political opponent, included Fauci downplaying the virus early on and a quote from March when he said people should not be walking around with masks, among other comments. The move by the White House comes as Donald Trump and Fauci are not speaking. The tension between the men has grown publicly as they've responded to one another through interviews and statements. 
In a recent series of newspaper and radio interviews, Dr. Fauci, who has worked under six U.S. presidents from both parties, has at times openly disagreed with Trump, saying, quote, as a country, when you compare us to other countries, I don't think you can say we're doing great. I mean, we're just not. In another interview, Fauci responded to the president's claim that 99% of coronavirus cases in the U.S. were totally harmless, saying he didn't know where the president got the number and suggested Trump's interpretation was, quote, obviously not the case, unquote. So what does Trump do? Goes on national television and says, Dr. Fauci's a nice man, but he's made a lot of mistakes. In recent interviews, he openly questioned the advice he'd received from Fauci at the start of the outbreak. I think we're in a good place. I disagree with him, Trump said in an interview last week when questioned about Fauci's assertion that the U.S. was still knee-deep in the first wave of the pandemic. One senior administration official told CNN that some officials within the White House do not trust Fauci. According to the sources, these officials think Fauci doesn't have the best interest of the president. Because after all, that should be his primary concern, right? The best interest of the president? Kathleen Sebelius, who served as Secretary of Health and Human Services under Barack Obama, told CNN that efforts to discredit Fauci and other scientists are potentially very, very dangerous as the U.S. and other countries work toward a coronavirus vaccine. We predicted on this program some time ago that if the president was determined to pretend that this virus is no big deal and it's just going to go away, which we would emphasize, is exactly what he is doing. He's doubling down on that assertion. We predicted that that would dictate a propaganda campaign from the federal government and from states allied with Trump to downplay what is actually going on. We're not big fans of Twitter on this program. We think that's a sort of a diabolical way for people to communicate, although we would cite a, a prominent devil out there who does rely upon it. But here's a tweet from April 8th. We cannot resist quoting. This comes from Jay Rosen, described as a press critic. He said on that date, the battle to keep Americans from understanding what went on January to April is going to be one of the biggest propaganda and freedom of information fights in modern U.S. history. So much is public that the manufacture of confusion will have to be massive. We were saying something similar about that time. I hope we said it as forcefully. Let's go to a piece from WashingtonPost.com from a few days ago. It's an opinion piece saying, Stop saying Trump is in denial. The truth is much worse from Greg Sargent. I don't know much about Mr. Sargent, but he certainly doesn't pull his punches. He started the article off as follows. To paraphrase George Orwell, when it comes to President Trump's bottomless malevolence and depravity, Accurately describing what's right in front of our noses is a constant struggle. And a perfect example of this is the ubiquitous claim that Trump is, quote, in denial, unquote, about coronavirus. With Trump now launching a campaign to get schools reopened, versions of this are everywhere. The new push shows Trump as, quote, learn nothing, unquote, about the perils of reopening society too quickly. Proclaims one health expert, Trump is lost in magical thinking, basically in denial insists one Democratic governor. Trump is incapable of grasping that people are dying, frets one advocate for educators. But, notes Greg Sargent, the problem really is that Trump is incapable of learning. But, asked Greg Sargent, is the problem really that Trump is incapable of learning or that he's deceiving himself or he's closed his eyes to reality? The preponderance of evidence points to something far worse. Trump, 
has been widely and repeatedly informed by his own and other experts for many months that his failure to take coronavirus more seriously could have utterly catastrophic consequences, that it could result in widespread suffering and needless death. It isn't enough to point out that Trump repeatedly ignored that advice. What's more important is that Trump has repeatedly seen the predicted consequences of those failures come to pass and is seeing that right now. Yet, Trump still continues not just to downplay the severity of the virus's continuing toll, but also to actively discourage current efforts to mitigate the spread by failing to set an example through mask wearing, for instance, and to urge the very sort of rapid reopening that has already contributed to catastrophic outcomes. The carnage is mounting once again. Total cases just hit 3 million. Well, this this article is a few days old. In the last eight days, we're now pushing 3.5 million. It might be kept in mind that adding 500,000 people took only eight days, whereas in the U.S., we went from basically 100 cases to the first 500,000 over 37 days. So yes, things are accelerating. The national rolling average of 50,000 new daily cases is far outpacing June. And when Dr. Fauci said a few days back that 100,000 a day new cases was probably in the cards, well, he was right. Between July 10th and 11th, we added 72,000 cases, for example. Notes Greg Sargent, there's no doubt that the decision to reopen rapidly in many states, which Trump urged, has played some kind of important role in the current surges. As a former Baltimore health commissioner noted, the key is we did not have to be here right now. Yet, notes Sargent, Trump has shown zero signs of even trying to grapple with the cause and effect behind these new circumstances. Instead, he continues to lie about them, falsely claiming we have the lowest mortality rate in the world, falsely claiming that 99% of cases are totally harmless, and absurdly claiming that the virus will quote-unquote disappear. Can this really be described as being in denial? Under the paragraph heading, we know why Trump is doing this, Sargent goes on, Trump was privately warned in January by his Health and Human Services Secretary that a pandemic was coming. He dismissed this as alarmist, then largely refused to act for weeks, only to see coronavirus rampage out of control here as a result. The experts loudly warned in April that a rapid reopening could prove disastrous. Trump urged it anyway, and we're now learning that the experts were right. We know why Trump did these things. He feared the publicity taking coronavirus too seriously would spook the markets, which he sees as crucial to his re-election. His allies frankly admitted reopenings would fuel the impression of rapid rebound, helping his re-election, or so they thought. In those cases, Trump made an active choice to prioritize his own perceived personal needs over what experts, including his own, recommended as in the best interest of the country. He has now seen them proved right twice. And to backtrack a moment to the previous piece, which was by Kristen Holmes in CNN, one senior administration official told the agency that some officials within the White House do not trust Fauci. According to the source, those officials think Fauci doesn't have the best interest of the president. 
No, it appears he's trying to treat this as an epidemic, not a PR problem. And he's not willing to back Trump's alternate reality. Notes the op-ed piece, it is a certainty that Trump will continue falsely claiming that vote by mail is subject to massive fraud to make it politically harder for local officials to scale it up. We know why Trump does this. He's told us himself. He fears vote by mail makes it more likely Republicans will lose the election, meaning that he will lose the election. Once we dispense with the idea that Trump remains in denial, we're left with few interpretations. The most charitable is that Trump continues to have a principled disagreement with experts over these matters. But he adds there are zero indications he has any substantively grounded views on them of any kind. A far less charitable interpretation is that he's indifferent to the catastrophic consequences that are resulting from these failures and will continue to do so. And that he's prioritizing nakedly self-interested political calculations over any such concerns. And really, isn't that what is going on here? Is, isn't that obvious that that is what is going on here? If you are a healthcare professional, and I'm sure many of you are, isn't it time you start yelling out loud about this? We used to look at other banana republic-type nations and feel glad that we didn't have to suffer from their governments. One example might be Zimbabwe. It's a beautiful country, very reminiscent of California. As it moved away from colonialism circa 1980, it looked as though it had a bright future. And it should have. But under the dictatorship of Robert Mugabe, and, and which has continued now under his successor, Emerson Mangangwa, the economy has been repeatedly trashed due to mismanagement. And the current regime, like Mugabe's before it, has killed, arrested, and abused protesters. Largely as a result of this, Western governments have rejected its pleas for help from the IMF and the World Bank. As the economy shrinks, fighting over the spoils may become more vicious, notes The Economist. Many in the army feel they have not received sufficient rewards for the risks they took in toppling Mugabe. Some resent the role of Kudakashwe Tagwire, a businessman close to the president whose firms have won many government contracts. Mnangagwa has stuffed the ministries and his office with allies, some of whom hail from his home region. Some have been accused of graft, including most recently the health minister, Obadiah Moyo, who allegedly agreed to a deal that includes $28 face masks. Notes the economist Zimbabwe has long proved adept at finding new depths to plumb. But the difficulty for the regime is that in the midst of a pandemic, ordinary Zimbabweans have fewer ways to survive. When schools reopen, which they're scheduled to do on January 28th, many teachers will not be able to afford the fees. We will be teaching other people's kids while ours stay home, said one. Well, Zimbabwe is an example of how bad it can be. But when you look at what's going on right here, right now, in the good old United States of America... You just have to think of bad government. In fact, you kind of have to think of Nero, who was reported by contemporary historians to have been playing an instrument and singing as his city burned to the ground. And yes, we have to get back to taking a look at the president's mental status. We received an email from listener Melissa a few days back, noting with some glee that 
The president's doctor now admitted that Trump dictated those lines in the physical some years back where he was described as being the most fit president probably in American history. Any doctor who's ever done a uh, an employment physical, and I'd say that pretty much includes every doctor at this point, every doctor would know that you just you just don't put lines like that in a history and physical. You just don't. It was obvious to everyone at the time that Trump had insisted that <laughs> those lines be put into the paperwork. And all that remains, you know, pretty laughable. It's a lot less humorous to contemplate the fact that Trump is now saying that he aced cognitive tests, although the White House will not release any details. Writing in the New York Times, Maggie Haberman noted last week, President Trump volunteered to Sean Hannity on Fox News that he very recently took a test at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center measuring his mental acuity, and he aced it. But the White House would not say when he took it or why. Trump boasted that his success in the test surprised his doctors, and he continued his attempt to make a campaign issue of whether his presumptive Democratic opponent, former Vice President Joe Biden, was mentally fit. Said Trump, age 74, in his interview with Hannity, I actually took one when I, I very recently when I when I was the radical left were saying, is he all there? Is he all there? And I proved I was all there because I, I got I aced it. I aced the test. He went on to suggest that Mr. Biden, age 77, should also take the test. Said Trump, he should take the same exact test, a very standard test I took at Walter Reed in front of the doctors. They were very surprised. They said, that's an unbelievable thing. Rarely does anyone do what you just did. Aides to Trump did not respond to questions about what test he took, when he took it, or whether they would make the results public. Over the years... The president has repeatedly faced questions about his own health, including why he made a mysterious visit to Walter Reed in November 2019 that, that White House officials later claimed was to get the jump on his annual physical. I mean, I'm sorry. You, you, just, have to, you just have to read stuff like this and think of Zimbabwe or, or Guatemala. Mr. Merlin points out that, you know, people over the age of three perhaps would have some doubts about some of this. Well, I know that's an exaggeration. I'd say more like seven, Mr. McMillan. But what continues to amaze me is the number of people that will believe some of the most amazing things. I talked to many friends about this, and they, they, they shake their head. They say, you know, I was talking to my dad, who's, who's a smart guy, and yet he's opening openly question whether this whole corona thing is, you know, isn't largely a hoax. It's going to all go away on election day. A surprising number of people seem pretty impervious to facts and logic when it comes to Donald Trump. They like him. They believe in him. They like who he attacks. They think he is speaking for them. It is indeed a puzzling phenomenon. We certainly can't profess to having a, a clear explanation for a lot of it. And a lot of what's said about this, about, about Trump's appeal and how he won in 2016 and all that, a, a lot of this is somewhat questionable. And, and to, to take a look at a little bit of that in our second segment today, we're going to speak with someone who spent some time uh, poring over the numbers and doing some analysis. That would be researcher Pat Spear. Truth is, there's a lot of folklore that's being woven into the narrative today. And we think the antidote to folklore is getting some straight information from some people that know what they're talking about. Let's do a little bit of that right now, shall we? 
little over three months ago, we read extensively from the Wired magazine interview with Larry Brilliant, the distinguished epidemiologist who aided in the eradication of smallpox and who for years has been warning the world of a pandemic that looks very much like the one we now have. The response to that article was reportedly tremendous. It was the second most read story in the history of Wired. And now we have a sequel. Wired said, we talked 100 days ago. What is different about the pandemic now? Said Brilliant, 100 days ago, we really didn't understand the pathophysiology, the way the virus and the human body interact, the illness as opposed to the epidemic. The unexpected thing that it's doing are not epidemiological, they're virological. In March, We were just beginning to see those horrific CT scans or x-rays of people with acute respiratory distress syndrome, where they had these big circles of holes in their lungs, and we were thinking, this is pretty much a respiratory disease. Since then, we've learned the virus attacks almost every organ in the body. Wired asked, it seems like the longer it goes, the less we know about it. Every week, something new comes up that contradicts what we thought we already knew. Said Larry Brilliant, no, no. You know a lot more about it now than you did three months ago. Yes, there are absolutely more questions today than there were 100 days ago. But part of that is because we're getting more sophisticated in our ability to ask questions. Three months ago, we had only a couple hundred cases of this virus. We now have over 11 million cases and a half a million deaths globally. The virus has been speeding along at exponential speed, but so has science. So now we can begin to understand that this virus attacks the circulatory system, it attacks the vascular nervous system, it attacks the respiratory system, it attacks our ability to bring in oxygen. That's why people can go to the hospital and be on their phone, not in any respiratory distress, but have oxygen saturation in the 50s. In the old days, we think of that as near death. Makes you understand why you can get these COVID toes why you can lose your sense of taste or smell, why you can have a stroke. This virus attacks blood vessels. It creates blood clots. We've learned a tremendous amount about this virus, about how it infects people, how it kills, how it spreads. But the big surprise to me is the kind of pan-organ nature of its attack. It gives the lie to anybody who thought that a comparison with influenza was in the ballpark. Said Wired, you paint quite a picture. Said Larry Brilliant. This is a big effing deal. Adding, this is the worst pandemic in our lifetime, and it is the first time we have had a pandemic in the United States in which we have had such a total, abysmal failure of our federal government. Said Wired, yet you say we've made progress. How much better are my odds of survival than they were three months ago? Said Brilliant, number one, you're better off because you're three months closer to a treatment or a prevention. Number two, the treatments are getting better so that outcomes in hospitals are getting better. We already have convalescent plasma with antibodies from recovered COVID-19 patients that's doing an amazing job. And number three, depending on where you live, by flattening the curve, it is far less likely you would have died in a corridor in a hospital because there was no room in an ICU or there was no oxygen to give you. But he did add, I think now almost 100% of all CU beds in Phoenix are full. Wired. So it's not a second wave, but still the first one? Brilliant. If you look at the case number graph from Arizona or Florida, you will see a vertical line 
for an epidemic graph. And it is because of the cavalier way in which those states dealt with this pandemic. Wired. So all that work we did to flatten the curve was squandered? Brilliant. It was absolutely not used as effectively as it should have been. To this day, we do not have a federal pandemic plan. It's worth pausing a moment and reading this interview and just think about that. To this day, we do not have a federal pandemic plan. There's a lot of talk about what we're going to do here, what we're going to do there, but there really is no central plan. Brilliant goes on to speculate what's going to happen when we start getting effective vaccines and how there should be better coordination among nations, to which Wired said you would hope. Referring to this planning, Brilliant said, well, it has happened, absent one player, the United States of America. We were not in those meetings. Wired, because we pulled out of the WHO? Brilliant. We haven't pulled out of the World Health Organization. It's not even clear how you pull out of the World Health Organization. Distancing ourselves is probably a better word just makes us look like clowns. WHO is stronger than ever. The rest of the world has rallied to its side. The Trump administration was not in the meetings where WHO was raising 8 to $12 billion just to help plan for the vaccination program. America's money has been replaced by other countries donating it. To which he adds, and with it will come the inevitable soft power that comes with funding. Wired, how influential is it that for months the president had resisted wearing a mask? Brilliant. It's incredibly influential. It is the reason why people can go to Palm Beach and accuse those who are wearing masks of stealing your God-given right to breathe oxygen. It's the conspiracy theory that masks are impregnated with some secret virus that's going to make you impotent. Most important, he gives license and cover to the governors in Georgia, Florida, Texas, and Arizona. They have been given permission and encouragement from Trump to say things like, it's going to disappear in April. The virus is going to disappear when it's hot. Excuse me? We are now in the middle of summer, and this puppy is exploding. Wired asked, okay, we know to wear a mask, but should we still be swabbing everything with Clorox? Said Brilliant. The virus does not exist very long on fomites, which is the medical word for objects that may be contaminated. I mean, you're talking about a very small percentage of cases that are caused by a pencil, a toilet seat. But if you don't have a cover on the toilet seat, someone who's got COVID takes a poo, you create an aerosol that can spread, which makes me want to pause for a moment and go, you know, it's time that we gave those low-flow toilets that explosively shove water into the bowl another look. Larry Brilliant isn't necessarily referring to those low-flow toilets, but I am. We thought that aerosolized feces was a bad idea to start, but when you add it, aerosolized feces contaminated with coronavirus, well, it's just that much worse, isn't it? But, says Larry Brilliant, if you look at the things that we're worried about, like the Amazon box that comes to the door, the fact the virus can do that doesn't mean it does do that. I don't scrub my groceries at all. If an Amazon box comes, I open it right away. I'm mostly worried about face-to-face transmission by somebody you have a conversation with or you're stuck in an elevator with, or you're seated next to someone at a rock show at a bar. I don't do any of those things. I don't go to lectures. I don't go out. Anyway, Brilliant has more to say. He notes a little further on that we should be doing basic epidemiology 101. We should be finding every active case. You find someone who has symptoms of this disease, and a human being talks to them and identifies all the people they've been in contact with, looking backward to try and find where the disease came from. Program before many times, you're not going to get very far without testing, contact tracing, and isolation.
But we are glad to hear from Larry Brilliant himself that convalescent plasma is proving effective in providing antibodies to help people. Francis Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health, is very optimistic that we will develop monoclonal antibody treatments that uh, may be very useful. There's some promising news in, in medications and, and vaccines, you know, are likely, I think it's fair to say, are likely to come online at some point. Maybe not by the end of this year, but hopefully in the next few years. And this might be a good point to take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We intend over the months to come between now and Election Day to hold Donald Trump's feet to the fire. And to help us do a little bit of that, will be researcher Pat Spear. Don't go away. <laughs> 